Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello everybody, Ian here. Welcome to episode 63 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So this week I'm going to be chatting to an ex-colleague, Ron Winch. Ron uh, is now working in academia and uh, he and I go back quite a long way to our days in the West Midlands Police as we'll discuss in the in our chat. Um, my memories of Ron in a professional context were the consummate professional. Uh, really thorough, conscientious, um, really took what he did incredibly seriously, took his responsibilities as a uh, police leader very seriously. Um, uh, really, really good guy. So uh, I was really looking forward to chatting to him and uh, yeah, it was a great chat, really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. So it's now the um, 20th of um, October, uh, quarter past 12. Uh, this is going to be going out next week, but my predictions are that Liz Truss will be gone by the end of the day because this is the day after the um, we had handbags uh, amongst all the MPs, handbags at dawn amongst all the MPs in Westminster last night. And the whole thing is just looking like a slow moving train wreck. So that's my prediction, and uh, who knows, next week I'm either going to be right or I'm going to be wrong. Right, let's get into the chat with Ron. Can you hear me? I can see your mouth moving. This feels like being back at uh, West Mids Police on Skype. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and that little <laughs> microphone icon. No, it's really funny. You even look a bit like uh, you're back in the Westminster Police with that black T-shirt on. It could, it could be, couldn't it? It's, you're obviously missing uh, it, aren't you? I do, I do miss it, yeah. I do miss the job. <laughs> like, a, what, like a really bad <laughs> dose of laryngitis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing anyway? You all right? Yeah, I'm really good, mate. And you're, you're well too. You look good. Yeah, well, you know, it's raining outside, but hey, you know, it's good for the ducks, good for the flowers, isn't it? You know? Absolutely. But, um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you're bright and early today. Um, yeah, I was thought I was just uh, I saw you joining the the meeting. I thought bloody hell, old habits die hard. Five minutes early for everything, isn't it? Well, that's that's right. First in, last out, isn't it? That's that's the job. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, my friend. Um, 
really, really happy to have you on the podcast because Thank you. Um, for, lot, for lots of reasons, because you're a mate, um, because you're an ex-Westmoods colleague, uh, ex-colleague rather. And um, yes, yeah, so I'm just sort of, I was thinking this morning of all the, so you're, there's been a few ex-Westmoods on the podcast so far. So we had Clive Burgess was the first. Um, and then um, we've had we've had Bob Bird, the uh, the one and only uh, Bob yep. Bird, and we've had Martin Brennan, and yep. um, oh gosh, I'm sure there must be another one there somewhere. But uh, yeah, forgive apologies if there is someone else who I've temporarily forgotten. But uh, yeah, so uh, well done you for plucking up the courage. No, it's an abs- it's an absolute pleasure to be with you, Ian. I've always I've been really impressed with. Um, with your other guests that you've had on the podcast and um so high praise indeed to be invited and um really looking forward to the opportunity to just spend a little bit of time with you talking through all things yeah. policing and yeah, definitely um, yeah. you know yeah, a subject no, that interests us all it's always controversial isn't it oh, policing god not off not off yeah particularly at the moment so so yeah so just to um sort of you know help people understand how we know each other um, you know, we served together in the Westminster Police, didn't we? We um, did, yeah. And, uh, and I was trying to think the other day, I think you and I were on the same SIO call-out rota uh, years ago when we were on D District, wasn't, weren't we? Were you on the... Yeah, I was on, I was on, um, uh, on as, as they were in those days, OCUs, weren't they? Operational That's Command right. Units in Westminster yeah, yeah. Police. So I was definitely on, on D uh, which D1 is or Birmingham D2? North D1 Birmingham D1, Birmingham that's kind of Birmingham East as it is now in Birmingham North really yeah. busy area um yeah. really interesting area around Allen Rock Washwood Heath um Aston yeah. Lazelles really oh, fascinating God. areas to oh, work yeah. in busy never areas a, never a dull moment and awesome. I was and I was on Stetchford which um, that's right you know, was, yeah was also very very busy and um yeah yeah so I was I was a DI on on the child abuse unit and you were i think you were the crime manager weren't you with dci yeah i was the dci i was the, i was the crime manager i went i went there from coventry i was posted i was i became uh, on promotion to chief inspector i became uh, the crime manager at coventry and uh, sort of the northeast part of coventry and then i got posted over to um d1 which was as we said sort of the birmingham east and north area yeah and um had a really good time there did lots of really interesting work worked with a really good command team there and who was your, um, who was your chief sub in those days uh, chief chief sub was the legendary tom coughlin oh, who was hell. uh uncompromising <laughs> yeah just and a bit. uh his favorite his favorite phrase was uh, intrusive leadership yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. he was he he would he, you know you were under no no illusions that you were there to deliver on key on key performance indicators which was about serious acquisitive crime yeah. reducing violence but he was also quite a quite a deep thinker and had quite an influence on my career around those broader aspects of the use of um, which in those days sort of uh, sort of just just the, I can't, we use this phrase don't we the turn of the century sort of about 2007 around around sort of that time around the use of civil injunctions yeah to manage organized criminals yeah, yeah. and restrict the movements of gang nominals yeah. within that area and actually that was a really effective police tactic at the time has been yeah. used subsequently and developed into areas of legislation even where yeah. we've used sort of yeah. s- civil injunctions to make to watch 
over gangs and reduce their kind of movements. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. And, and Birmingham, as you know, at that time and, and and still is really, it's still there's still a lot of organised crime activity, isn't there? And, and those parts of Birmingham that you and I served in, it was uh, a lot of gun crime, a lot of shootings, a yeah. lot of um, threats to life uh, involving uh, really nasty people who were trying to kill each other on a fairly regular basis, wasn't there? Yeah, it was. It was a it was a really interesting time to work. Um, and of course, but there was some really important. I mean, this is just pre austerity, isn't it, Ian? And there was some again, there was some really important work done around Birmingham reducing gang violence, of which, you know, we were at the forefront of within that kind of area around sort of street robbery, gang mm. activity in, in terms of working with partnerships to reduce mm. gang violence, of which you know, it's quite, there was some really good work done. Yeah, and then, yeah, of course, yeah. austerity came along and reduced our abilities to work in partnership with other, other agencies and other organisations, didn't it? And yeah, um, very much started so. to affect the, the kind of resources that you could apply to this problem. Yeah. So let's take, let's go right back then. Yeah. Because, um, because you and I are both, we're both met refugees, weren't we? We, we um, certainly were. <laughs> and we, we jumped ship, didn't we? Uh, pro- probably, at, probably at quite different times. But um, so let's go right back to the start of your career. Um, yeah. uh, you joined the Met, didn't you? So what year did you join the Met? Well, I joined. Uh, I joined the Met in uh, September of 1987. So right. 27th of September 1987. Um, rocked up at Hendon the Police mm. Police Training Centre in in North London there. Um, to start my, as it was in those days, 20 weeks of yeah. your initial recruit police training where you, I have to say on reflection, it was one of the best courses I've ever done in policing. Yeah. Uh, you didn't go on the street. You didn't know nowhere near a police station. They just kept you uh, on that residential course for 20 weeks where you did some drills, introduced to, to drill and marching and it was, like a, it was like a North Korean type of, uh, you know, reprogramming yes. um, course, wasn't it? But in a good way, in a good way. Yeah, I'd, say. I'd completely agree with you. Um, it was it was a really uh, very constructive course focusing. And we're going to talk about police training, aren't we? And police education. Yeah, definitely. Um, but the training was very practically based. So it was very much based around the police officer as an artisan. So the craft of policing was drummed into you. You were trained in it. Very little about the, you know, the, the theory um, of what of criminology. Very little about the theory of uh, academic theory around leadership, about organisational development. It was about that police officer as artisan. This is a craft, mm-hmm. not necessarily yeah. a profession. Yeah, it's a craft. It's about how you do the job practically in an applied circumstances yeah. on the street again i have to say very little about evidence-based policing mm-hmm. uh how how do we know what we were doing yeah. would actually work yeah in, yeah in I mean, an operational it's very, context it's very different times isn't it and <clears throat> and you pointed you touched on there you said what's so one of the key reasons i want i wanted to get you on the podcast really um as you as you said there is to talk about how police training is currently being delivered um and um get your thoughts on that but it's really good that you're you know going back to that point to sort of show the difference i suppose and what it yeah. was and in, in terms of the those 
you know, good old, good old, bad old days, you know, because <laughs> uh, it wasn't yeah. all, it wasn't all perfect, was it? But uh, yeah, yes, so anyway, it certainly wasn't. I mean, and I think I think the other aspect of that initial twenty week course, uh, first of all, it was hugely expensive mm. for the Met. I think it was very to to have those that volume of people on a residential course where, you know, your food, your accommodation was all all paid for, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. What it did actually do was it enabled the instructors there to get a really good relationship with the recruits. Mm. So any toxic values and attitudes, mm. any misogyny, any kind of racist attitudes were picked up and identified at a really early stage. And I think that's something that mm. we've lost in policing. Yeah, definitely. And I think we can see some of that characterised through, you know, Charing Cross and the Casey report that's uh, that's recently been published. Yeah. A lot of those attitudes and values are actually exposed yeah, yeah, through definitely. the training, the rigorous training environment. Definitely. And it was funny, wasn't it? Because um, I talked about this in, I, I did, a, I put a little sort of mini podcast out earlier on this week talking about the Casey report and talking about how in those days when you had residential training schools, which you know which we well know we're not perfect but they were as you say brilliant you you were immersed in that whole world sort of pretty much 24 7 for 20 weeks um and it fundamentally changed you um and and it, you know you became one of a you know a very tight-knit group of kind of you know police officers but um one of the things i talked about was how actually sometimes the actual class would out someone within the class to the instructors or to the trainers, someone who was basically just not right for the job. Um, so, so not only were the trainers able to spot those behaviours, but the class frequently would 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 sort of have a private meeting with the with the class sergeant instructor and just go, Sarge, this this person is out of control. Um, they're not displaying those behaviours necessarily in class because they're not stupid. But outside, there's all sorts of stuff going on here. And then lo and behold, you'd find that they would literally just disappear, wouldn't they? Yeah, they were. And they, they were effectively, you know, really effectively managed out of the organisation. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, they would be, they, that behaviour would be addressed. The evidence mm. would be put to them. And then, you know, when, in no uncertain terms, it was, they were then sort of, in, you know, advised that actually the best thing for them would be to resign. Yeah, yeah, and many of them did, rather than go through the sort of discipline yeah. channels. Yeah, and then have um, that on there, have that have that stain yeah, on their CV, absolutely sacked from the police. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so those individuals never ever made it mm. into yeah. you know into a public facing function. Whereas yeah. now, you know, those kind of individuals arguably make it into frontline policing. Yeah, yeah. with those toxic attitudes and values, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, are so corrosive to trust and confidence. You know, I've just realised, I very remiss of me, we didn't actually explain what you're currently doing at the start of the <laughs> podcast. We didn't actually explain. So you are, sorry, many apologies, just because when, when you explain what you're doing, um, it'll all make sense why, why you're here talking about police training. So what's your current role? Yeah, well, my current role is I'm a senior teaching fellow at Birmingham City University, um, teaching on the professional policing degree, which is the undergraduate program that's accredited by the College of Policing. So we uh, we teach and students study for a degree 
in professional policing where we go through a lot of modules around the theory of and you know, everything from the theory of criminology to the psychology of interview spaces to technological influences on policing to leadership organizational development strategic management etc uh, so i teach on that and i'm also the course director for the postgraduates the master's program in policing and intelligence analysis where we focus a bit more on the strategic aspects of policing and the current sort of context of policing um, in England and Wales mm. and the broader UK, the international dimension, bringing in security, bringing in intelligence systems mm. and uh, thinking about much more around the sort of strategic direction of policing in a contemporary sense. Bloody hell. Well, it's interesting because I just listened to the most recent episode of the uh, News Agents podcast this morning, which I listen to kind of most days. And, you know, they were describing how being a political journalist at the moment is like you, you sort of like you, you, you kind of go for a poo and you come back and everything's changed, you know. Yeah. And, and in the same way, um, I don't think they use that exact analogy, but I'll, I'll use that analogy. <laughs> um, and uh, in the same way, you delivering a course like that around policing it must be you must think oh my god well everything must become very um kind of irrelevant quite quickly because it's changing so quickly isn't it it does change quickly and, and the thing about policing as we as we know is that uh, it's always controversial mm, yeah. uh, this all policing is always in the news it's always controversial people always have a view about it and you know policing's response to you know developing what's called the professionalization agenda which is yeah. policing becoming you know having professionally accredited qualifications degree entry yeah. uh, policing is now a degree entry profession uh, a body of research so we've got much more uh, influence from academic bodies looking at evidence-based policing and also importantly which is a third dimension of any kind of profession is clear ethical standards through a code of ethics that are enforceable and regulated and governed mm. partly through the organization itself. So if you look at those three different dimensions, that encompasses the professionalization agenda within policing. Yeah. It's how policing is kind of developed and looking at the way forward about how policing is going to develop into the future. Yeah, brilliant. So let's let's go. Um, so apologies for jumping backwards and forwards, but I just I just uh, no problem at suddenly all. realized I hadn't actually introduced you properly in terms of what you're currently doing, which is very important in terms of the point of the of this episode. So um, going back to your um, early career, then, because I think it's important just to sort of chart what you did and whatnot. Um, so where did you go when you left Hendon? Well, I was posted to a fantastic part of the East End of London at Bethnal Green. Uh, which was uh, an amazing place to work from a number of perspectives. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a nerd in a way around police history. So I really enjoyed police history, and it was the area of East London where the craze had operated. Mm. So very, very quickly, you had that kind of cultural um, sort of uh, angle, the feeling of the area, very rich area, very diverse area as well. Mm -hmm. You had the kind of history of the Second World War as well. It was an area that was heavily bombed, that was subject mm. to uh, V2 rocket attacks. There was a really, uh, there was a disaster at Bethel Green Tube Station where uh, scores of people died in, a, in an air raid situation. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also also going back even further into the sort of how London expanded from from the sort of city of London from the old walled mm. part of London into sort of the 
the the outer lying areas and that growth of the city was was a real interest to me so yeah, yeah. steeped in history steeped in culture and you're obviously um, from you're you're a, a, are you a london by, I am, by yeah, I, was, yeah. I am i i come originally come from uh, ilford in in essex which is northeast london so um it was very much on my sort of doorstep and mm. in those days ian uh, as you know um the metropolitan police took recruited people from all over the country. Yeah, there yeah. Was I was lots going to say, people. you must have been the only Londoner in your class. That was a joke. Yeah, that was the, that was a kind of running joke that as you were quite rare, actually having come from London to work in, in the Met at the time, yeah, uh, because yeah. people came from all over the UK. And yeah. uh, it's a, yeah, it was a really sort of stimulating. It? Yeah, it was fascinating. And they've been through all sorts of uh, different iterations over the years of, you know, there's a period of time when you have to be from London to join and then they drop that and then they reintroduce it and then they drop it again. And I'd lose track of all the different things, but. Uh... Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think, I think the, um, the record, I think they had an officer that actually had their, had their registered rumor has it, a, a, an officer has commuted from France, from Northern oh. France. Oh my God. To work in the Met and perhaps even further afield. So yeah, so now it's completely different. <laughs> so uh, so Bethnal Green, um, what were your early recollections of the way oh, fantastic. things done in those days? Um, well, policing in those days, in the, in the late 80s, was, uh, was a very different operation to how policing is done now. Um, and, and in a sense, it was, it was um, uh, whilst uh, the, 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 the response function um, the relief, as, as they were called, the twenty-four-seven response policing function was where everybody started. So that's where you you cut your teeth, you um, you you gained experience in arresting people, in dealing with road police, road, road traffic matters. You got early, very early, early experience in dealing with issues like sudden death. Um, so you were very quickly sent to deal with dead bodies to see if you had had the aptitude and lit, quite literally sometimes the stomach to deal with issues of sudden death mm. and interacting with members of the community. But the, the, the other thing that struck me about uh, policing in those days com- was the sheer kind of um, the sense of humour that was very particular to policing. Uh, some of it was very much uh, gallows humour. Yeah. Uh, some of it was also about actually the prevalence of officers playing practical jokes on each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and the kind well, you had, of you had to have eyes in the you had to you have eyes in the back of your head, didn't you? Ab- absolutely. And you know those those times, and actually quite immature practical jokes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and and the kind of the, that kind of informal um, sort of moderation about how teams operated always interested me, and how yeah. people that were, um, I mean, now now those issues would be treated very, very differently. But again, um, issues where um, officers would, would be, uh, you know, would be pranked, there would be jokes, yeah. there would be people setting off fire extinguishers on others in the, in the yard at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And those kind of areas where you, where in those times it was, it it's was designated. Of, it's as, sad, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, I, the thing is, and I've talked about this before on the podcast where, well, you're absolutely right. A lot of those behaviours would not be tolerated now. They'd take a very dim view of it. But things, generally speaking, generally speaking, were never allowed to get out of hand. Yeah. And the sergeants and inspectors would make sure that that was the case. That very often they would be in on it. and um, But they would always know where the line was. 
and and it was generally done in very good humor wasn't it and i i can't remember i'm sure it happened i mean i'm not naive i can't remember seeing that sort of behavior being directed in a really malicious way towards someone it was generally done just for fun wasn't it yeah it, it was and and i think you know the leadership as we've just discussed tolerated this often they were in on it uh, tolerated these because it was seen as something that was character building yeah, yeah and the the quote was and you'll remember this the the numbers of times it was directed if you if you haven't got a sense of humor you shouldn't have joined the job that's right. Can't yeah, that was absolutely that that was that was the issue. So if you had a if you were pranked or there was a practical joke played on you, it was it was it was to be received in the uh, yeah. in that spirit where it was character building. It was character forming almost as a rite of passage, as, yeah, as yeah. something of an in, initiation. Oh, yeah. And I can remember seeing people occasionally most people took it in the spirit that it was meant, wasn't it? occasionally yeah. someone would have a massive sense of humor failure wouldn't they yeah and then it would and that was brilliant because that just which made it all the more fun it made it even funnier didn't it yeah and and there'd be all the ooh, you know all the handbags and you know, people clutching their handbags yeah and yeah. all this kind of stuff but yeah. it, it was <laughs> it was funny and i do remember you know very occasionally you would see someone and it would almost descend into physical blows but um but now it's all good fun anyway um yeah Going on, Nick. So, how long did you spend at Bethel Green? I was at Bethel Green for five or six years before, um, and this is another aspect of of policing that you know we tended to experience. Um, that uh, I then made my way to the West Midlands, not because I had um, you know burning ambition to uh, join West Midlands Police um, or to leave them, leave the Met and leave London, but relationships change in your life, mm. and. Um, uh again your ability to maintain to form relationships to manage relationships effectively mm. within the stip, you know the full-on career of policing mm. i found really challenging and mm. and i if i'm honest with myself now looking back um i was completely indoctrinated with police as a as an occupation as a profession and again the, the expression that you would have heard ian and we've used is i was i became job pissed Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't the BBC. We can use industrial language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was totally job pissed. I was totally focused on policing. It was the biggest. It was the number one priority in my life. Yeah. It was such an all-encompassing, absorbing, stimulating, interesting profession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That it took over my life to the mm. detriment of my ability to manage relationships. Right. Within so, other areas of my life. So, so did your partner at the time come from Birmingham? Was that was that the draw? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, that was that was what took me to Birmingham. Took me to the West Midlands, right? And um, and I took a big decision to leave the Metropolitan Police, which wasn't wasn't an easy was not an easy decision. And what year? What year uh, was that? Then? That was in nineteen ninety three. So right, I came okay. to. So you'd done about five. Yeah, five, came to six, West six Midlands, years. Yeah. Yeah. and I was posted when I came to uh, to the West Midlands to inner city Birmingham, which in fairness, I didn't find that different from policing in London. Mm -hmm. Communities, very similar um, influences on communities, very similar, similar demands on policing, yeah. very similar levels of police activity, mm -hmm. um, very similar attitudes and values from police officers themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I thrived. I really did thrive in the West Midlands. Very quickly, I became, I, I gained promotion. I became uh, a detective and uh, really thrived in yeah. the West Midlands as a region. Fell in love with the region, I have to say, 
Really? Um, so amazing. Because um, obviously I transferred as well, but obviously yeah. uh, quite a bit l- later than, than you did. Um, I did. I did about fourteen uh, years in in uh, the Met. Um, I find it really disorientating. First of all, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I was. I genuinely. I could not have been made to feel more welcome. Um, yeah. And I transferred on promotion as a sergeant um, uh, to Coventry, and I. I cannot fault the Westminster Police in terms of welcoming me we with open arms. Um, and from day one, um, I, I never. You know, I, I there was never any sense of uh, feeling, um, you know, that this was a, this has been a bad move or anything like that. Um, but I did find uh, adjusting to the different ways that things were done um, and the language and the way yeah. what things were just what things were called and all that kind of stuff. Did you did you find that? I, I very much did. I mean, I always originally coming from London, I could sort of distinguish. Uh, different accents across London. I could distinguish an East London accent, sort of that estuary influence to a South London accent. Yeah. And then when it came to the West Midlands, the accents and the different areas of the West Midlands as a region, I found were very, very different. Yeah. Uh, and and landing in Birmingham straight away, there was a particular way of um, the community um, looked at their own identity. And then you just go down the road to sort of Smethwick and the black country areas. And people again, have a very different accent and a very different identity. And then Coventry mm-hmm. is a wholly different area again, yeah, yeah, yeah. very much with you know, people with their own sense of civic pride, their own identity. And if you speak to mm-hmm. someone, you speak to a genuine Coventryan um, or Coventryan, you know, they do not associate themselves with being in the same region as Birmingham and other areas of the West Midlands. Well, half the cops in Coventry don't associate they don't. With, with being in the West Midlands Police, do they? They, absolutely. they see themselves as on this little island of Coventry, don't they? You're absolutely right. And and navigating your way around that. And I was kind of okay with that because I was a little bit of an outsider. Hmm. And, uh, and in fact, I used to sometimes, you know, um, use it to sort of be mischievous with colleagues who are very yeah. distinctive from a particular area and say, oh, we're all, you're all from Greater Birmingham, aren't you? And, and people yeah. would not accept that. Yeah, as yeah. as a as a position you know they were not from greater birmingham they were from smethwick or they were from coventry or or solely hole even which yeah, is yeah. quite posh for those of you, those of you that uh, those listeners that oh, I know. are particularly familiar with the west midlands so what so, so what direction were you sort of because most people go in one of two directions yeah. generally speaking don't they i go down the sort of uniform route or they go down the sort of investigator route which yeah. route were you on well i always i always loved cid work i loved investigation work and i guess i guess in in sort of older language my career then went on on a conventional what was known as interchange so i would go in and out of uniform and into the cid as i progressed through the ranks i got promotion and in fact mm-hmm. i was a, i was a detective in every role every rank up to detective chief inspector, but I always had periods in uniform yeah. in naval policing, in response policing. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, you know, kind of went through the system yeah. uh, where I did a bit of everything. Now what that, what that actually gave me was a broad experience hmm. of different areas and different functions in policing. So I got an empathy for uniform work as well as CID work. So I never considered CID work to be, elitist it was all you know we were all part of the same team yeah but in terms of your ability to make a difference to people's lives um, you could do that in different ways in different mm-hmm. circumstances work yeah. with different interesting people yeah and and looking back 
over the whole of my police career, I, I always say, well, I had one profession, hmm. but I had probably at least a dozen different careers yeah. within that 30 years. Yeah, 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 definitely. Very, very similar to, to myself, really. I think your career, your career sort of, um, you know, I, like you, I spent, um, you know, periods of as in detective roles um throughout my career really and as well as uniform roles and and enjoyed both equally yeah. really and uh, and i would say to anyone who's listening to this who is uh you know uh, early in their career or whatever or thinking yeah. of joining whatever i'd say just um really spread spread your wings and try try lots of different try lots of different things you know um don't don't sort of get pigeonholed into one particular area sort of particularly too quickly you know yeah, absolutely right. And this is what I tell my students now, that one of the reasons why policing is such a fantastic career is, is your, the scope to do different things, to learn different skills, to keep developing, to keep reinventing yourself, whether it's career progression, whether it's promotion, whether it's specialisation, yeah, yeah, to really just gain those different experiences. Yeah, brilliant. So um, let's get on to talking about um, God, so just well, let's just top until your career actually, because obviously you went on to become a chief superintendent. Uh, well done you, um, and um, uh, you finished at. I'm just trying to think. Where were, we, were you? Sutton Coalfield when you finished? I finished. I finished in Solihull. Hall. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah but only a, I was only there for a, a short period of time. I had um, command roles in Birmingham North. I I had uh, command of West Midlands Police. Operations department, which was a fantastic job. I had the police train set with that, Ian. I had the firearms officers. I had the public order. I had roads policing. I had Birmingham Airport. So I had some really, really interesting and stimulating roles yeah. within police operations. Fantastic job that was. Yeah, 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 brilliant. So, uh, so yeah. So let's get on to um, education stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I, I, as you, as you know, I've, I maybe don't, um, I've been quite outspoken about the whole, um, I've been quite outspoken about the whole, um, police degree program. Yeah. But I'll acknowledge that I don't really know that much about it. Um, I suppose my objections to it, uh, have always been on the basis that I just don't think it's necessary um uh and i was a, i was a graduate when i joined um and i've, and I've explained previously that um i actually find that a hindrance rather than a help for the first few years of my service i felt that as a graduate and i'm back in those days there weren't many graduates in the police um uh, i felt at a bit of a disadvantage uh, a lot of my colleagues were um a lot more common sense than me they got the got to they got the hang of street policing. I felt a lot quicker than I did. Uh, it took me probably three three and a half years before I actually really thought, right, I know what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, so, where to start with this? Just thinking about um, what I'm what I'm interested in understanding is um, how does the whole process work now? Because I know there's different routes into it, aren't there? Yeah, uh, compared to the back in the day when basically everyone did exactly the same. They all went to training schools and they all came out. It was like a sausage factory, wasn't it? Yeah. They all came out at the end, and then they'd do their sort of two-year probation. They'd probably do a bit of a bit of time on the streets, sort of being puppy walked by a more experienced officer, 
and yep. then they would uh, tutor and then they would be let loose, uh, attached to a team and then do the two year probation with various exams along the way. And they'd either get confirmed at the end of it, end of the two years, or, or they wouldn't. And, and to be fair, most people did, didn't they? So, so um, explain to me how it all works now, because I don't yeah, really sure. understand it. With, with pleasure. So um, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that, um, you know, uh, like it or loathe it, policing is a degree entry profession. And that goes to recent developments in government policy around um, the apprenticeship levy that all big organisations have to pay as a kind of, in a sense, it's, it could be argued to be an, an additional corporation tax mm. where a big organisation pays additional uh, an additional levy to the central government that they can claim back if they have apprentices right okay and part of the apprenticeship program in policing is uh, the police constable degree apprenticeship scheme which is you join the police without a degree mm -hmm. you go through the selection process to join the police and once you're in policing you then study for a degree in professional policing right. which you get is is organized through the apprenticeship levy the relevant force will pay towards that apprenticeship levy and they can claim that money back when officers graduate okay so when officers get their degree and they study for that degree part-time 20 percent of their time has to be uh, dedicated to studying for a degree mm -hmm. so essentially it's day release mm -hmm. and then at the end of three years they have a degree in professional policing Okay, so that's one routine. So you, so so just to pause you there, yeah, when, and just just from my understanding, obviously back in the day, the, the lion's share of what we did at training school was learning about the law, wasn't it? Yeah, um, and it was literally having to learn by rote, um, yeah. acts and sections, um, and you would, you know, I'll be able to, I'll probably be able to quote the. Uh, I've gone and done it now. I'll probably oh, you'll, you'll, you'll test me now. <laughs> What's only. the definition of theft? <laughs> section nine, burglary. Section nine one a. Section nine one b. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I'll probably be able to. You know, when when I'm old and lying in, uh, you know, lying in bed on oh. my deathbed, I'll probably I'll probably won't be able to remember what I had for breakfast, but I'll probably be able to remember Absolutely. the definition of burglary. Yep. Section nine one a. Um, so, do they still do that stuff? Some of it, but not but not as much. That's dealt with uh, in force. And, and in sort of universities and it, areas, uh, higher education institutes where uh, students go on their day release because this is all accredited through universities and other higher education institutes. It's focusing much more on the kind of the, the, the theoretical, the uh, criminological, the behavioral, the technological, um, political, economic, social aspects of what policing is about as a profession right. police organization so it's not focusing on this is how you do stop and search this is yeah. how you conduct an arrest this is what the definition of theft is um students are you know that is delivered for students by and large uh through their sort of their they still have to do their probation which is three years right. whilst they whilst they study for their degree so that's okay. additional training that they how, how are they tested on all of that on all of this stuff because it feels yeah. like there's sort of a twin track there there's oh. the kind of legislative stuff and then there's yep. the kind of more sort of um you know the more theoretical yeah. or academic stuff so how are they tested yep. on, on both through of a those? range through a range of assessments and the one thing that 
um, higher education institutes are doing, and, and we are included in doing that, is that assessments are becoming much more what, what are known as authentic. So when I was at university and when you were at university, and I know we would have done, had big set piece exams where you had a hall full of people yeah. answering uh, a number of questions and writing four sides of A4 mm -hmm. in longhand. We don't do that anymore. Uh, we don't, although we do some uh, essay-based assignments and assessments, that's not the entirety. A lot of what we do is based on in-person assessments, mm -hmm. based on applied circumstances that addressing problem-based learning, situational judgment, et cetera, for situations that people will find actually in the policing mm -hmm. environment, actually back into the real world. So it's very mm -hmm. applied-based. Um, we know through research that applied authentic assessment is much more relevant to people in terms of building their skills that they're going to need as they take into the police service right. during their professional career. And, who's, and who sets, who designs and yeah. the actual syllabus? As such? Is it a national yeah. national syllabus that's delivered it, consistently by the across the country? Or Yeah, and by and large, the consistent elements are governed by the College of Policing. So every higher education institution has to have its program accredited by the College of Policing. So the College of Policing has to agree, has to agree the indicative content that universities and higher education institutes apply. Mm -hmm. So the modular content of the different courses and the different subject matter programs and the assessments have to be accredited and agreed by the College of Policing, which is the national body that oversees training, learning and development in policing. Right. But there's a fair amount of discretion that different institutions have around their own approaches. So there's yeah, quite yeah. a bit of local discretion, which I think is a healthy thing yeah, because yeah. it gives individual um, institutions that ability to be very bespoke to their own area. For example, Birmingham City University here, we're based in Birmingham, obviously, the West Midlands broader region, mm -hmm. you know, is very influential mm -hmm. on how we approach our education in policing. Right, okay. And um, what, um, just out of curiosity, are the lion's share of your students all from the West Midlands region? They are from, yeah, they're from all over the country. First of all, uh, getting onto the sort of the roots in, I've covered the degree apprenticeship, which we don't actually do here at BCU, but we do the professional policing degree. So what we right. do is cater for students that come to us for three years, who are going to, going to come to university anyway, they come full time. Right. And when they finish with us, they then have that qualification to take into policing. Right. And they then join the police service. Okay. Uh, but they come from all over the country. And we've had students, we've even had students that have uh, that have taken up postings uh, and, and are looking at postings abroad in other parts of Europe, for example, that, oh, okay. that come to us from other parts of Europe, international students. Um, but most students stay in the UK. Most students tend mm. to join uh, tend to be attracted to the West Midlands from where we are, but not right. not exclusively. And what's the split um, between those who are doing it as a full time thing, uh, in the same way that you would go to university to study, I don't know, biology or something, uh, versus those who are on day release and yeah, spend, well, spending a lot of time out on the force? Yeah, and there are a number of there are a number of universities in the West Midlands that do the professional policing degree, but the overwhelming majority of people will be in force studying on the police constable degree apprenticeship scheme, the PCDA, and doing the day release for, uh, right. for all intents and purposes. So the vast majority of people will do it because the attraction of that is to earn while you learn. 
Right. Okay. Um, it's not. It's not uh, necessarily suitable for everybody, and yeah, yeah. you know, people have quite a bit of choice about mm. how they join policing and what they what they uh, the, the route they choose to take. Okay. So there is correct me if I'm wrong here. So there basically is no other option for this. Is not a trick question. I just need to understand this. Um, there's no other option than to have a degree, either to have already obtained a degree or to obtain a degree whilst working. Um, on day release from the police there yeah. is a, there's not an expectation that everyone has a degree it, yeah? yeah there is some there are some isolated cases of forces out there that that still recruit and put people through the sort of old-fashioned track of not having a degree right. but the, the 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 issue is as people more and more people join the police service on a degree entry entry program is that they will start to maybe outcompete others when it comes to career progression, promotions, specialisations in right. terms of their own career development and professional development in policing. Um, mm. I've known lot, and you will as well. We've known I've known lots of officers that I've worked with that didn't have a degree that were really excellent officers. They were mm. brilliant cops. Yeah, yeah. Some people were brilliant cops who would never have been able to gain a degree because yeah. they didn't have the same acad academic uh, skills and abilities, yeah. but were still really good police officers. But I have to say, I have to say that I never worked with anybody who wouldn't have benefited from having a degree in professional policing. Really? Uh, professional yeah, professional policing has, has changed. It's changed you know, radically in terms of the kind of skills that people are being equipped with. And I have to say, mm. looking at the qualities of, of, of our students, um, I am really optimistic about the future of, of policing, of policing as a professional occupation yeah. in terms of policing's ability to respond to the challenges that it faces. And God knows policing yeah. has a well, lot I'm of very, challenges. I'm very pleased to hear that because um, I, I must admit, I've been, I've been quite, uh, quite gloomy about, about all of that. Um, and I know that, I know you, I've known you a long time on and off, you know, and um, I know that you wouldn't say that unless you genuinely believed it. Um, so, so, so let me put to you some of the criticisms, I suppose, um, not, not, to, not to be deliberately um, disagreeable or anything like that, but just to put some of the, some, some of the objections yeah. uh, that people have got about it. I suppose, firstly, there's that argument and we hear an awful lot is that there is, a, there is a perception by people who've been in the job for a long time or for those who've, you know, left fairly recently that, the College of Policing, uh, let's just talk about the College of Policing for a minute, is um, out of touch with the realities of what the job actually entails on the front line and um, and as maybe over, maybe overly, overly intellectualizing, for want of a better word, what is by any definition for most of the time a job that requires a massive a mind of just common sense so what are your thoughts about about that objection that people yeah have? i mean i i i, I hear that characterize characterization i and i have to say that um uh i think you know police training and governance of police training and learning and professional development is isn't perfect give me any system that is perfect mm. um but i have to say my my experiences with the college of policing um, you know, are largely positive around the College of Policing's desire to understand actually what, what happens on the front line, how policing actually 
delivered, particularly mm. around the concepts of developing a body of research and a body of evidence that indicates what is effective and what is not effective in policing. And, you know, we would have been there, wouldn't we, where um, different initiatives have been tried in policing, where see, different senior officers have thought, actually, this, this is a particular police tactic that feels like it could work. Yeah, it mm. feels like it's sensible. Let's try it without any kind of mm. research or evaluations to whether those tactics were effective, mm. did have the desired effect mm. um, or, or worked or were relevant for the community. And, you know, there's that there's that sort of that adage, isn't there, that the policing has the me corporate memory of a goldfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah. lessons aren't learned effectively, yeah. and that uh, research isn't properly undertaken. At least with the with the College of Policing as it is at the moment, with its enthusiasm for mm. research, and you know, I'm part of that in terms of being an academic in policing, studying a PhD at the moment. You know, we are part of that community that is looking at actually what's effective. Yeah. So I suppose the counter argument to that, and again, this is, um, don't worry, I'm going to, I'm going to try and be as balanced as I can here with all of this. The counter argument to that would be if we're looking at what is effective in policing um, and teaching, basing our sort of training processes on, on that, then by any definition across so many areas of policing at the moment, they're failing, aren't they? Um, now, there's a, there's a there's a the point I want to make here is that I, I don't think that, I don't think there's any arguments that policing at the moment is failing across multiple multiple parameters and you know you look at the resolutions of crime and terrible service so but I think the challenge is to unpick that which is as a result of anything to do with the College of Policing and that which is as a result of the loss of resources over the last 10 to 12 years and the creeping, um, well, not creeping, the, the tsunami of demand that lands on yeah. the organization as a result of the withdrawal of resources for numerous other parts of the public yeah. service that then ends up dumping demand on policing. So, it's hard for anyone. I mean, I, you know, I live and breathe this stuff. I, I, I talk more about policing than probably, you know what I mean? I'm probably in the top 2% yeah. of people in the country who think and talk about policing. And yet I find, even I find it hard to understand what, you know, how much of it is um, police training and development and promotion losing its way and how much of it is the organization having been shafted on resources over the last 12 years? Does that all make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think I think the resourcing and particularly austerity in policing since 2010, and it looks like we're going to go into a, another episode of austerity with the current cost of living crisis and potential cuts in public services, is that it's certainly been a it's been a huge aggravating factor let's be honest and and part of the condition has been that policing as and other public sector organizations have gone into sort of a silo mode where um you know they've looked to make savings policing has not been exempt from that in relation to 
reduction of officer and police staff numbers. And sometimes it's been over, overlooked is that number of police staff leaving the organisation has also had a critical factor mm. on that demand area. And we know through research, again, that something like only 20% of what the police do has anything to do with crime. Mm. Most of what the police do is actually fact around safeguarding, around missing people, around mental health. That's a huge aspect of policing, isn't it? And and a lot of this has, has meant that supervisors haven't been able to lead and supervise. And to go back to Tom Coughlin's view around intrusive leadership and supervision, that mm. just hasn't been taking place to, with any like a sufficient uh, sort of rigorous uh, yeah. context and yeah. and those toxic attitudes and values have been allowed to develop in some in some really key areas i have to say though the majority of officers still do a fantastic job yeah hugely yeah. brave professional yeah. but as ever it's that aspect of trust and confidence that can be impacted by a disproportionate number of people can't it um, yeah, getting involved in misconduct. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, and just on on that one, it's just interesting. I mean, I mean, the whole issue around misconduct and these unacceptable attitudes and behaviours. Um, I'm tr I'm trying really, really hard to be as um, balanced in my thinking about this yeah. as as I can be. Uh, because the knee-jerk reaction from everyone is always going to be, it's disgraceful, you need to crack down on it, you need to, you know, um, get these people out of the job, blah, blah, blah. And I would say that uh, for the worst offenders, 100%, 100%, I'd have them out of the job tomorrow if I could. But there's also part of me that wonders if we are setting standards of behaviour for police officers so high compared to almost any other profession uh, that we are going to find ourselves in a situation where uh, it's almost impossible to, um, to do the job or to people are going to be having to be so guarded about everything they say, everything they write down um, for fear of someone somewhere taking offence. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I think, I think, I think there's quite a bit to unpack, unpick there, Ian, and, and I think there are a couple of areas that I, I bring out. First of all, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the really high standards that police officers are expected to achieve in their daily professional lives and, and indeed in their personal lives, um, because policing is an occupation. It's a profession where um, a police officer is never really off duty. They always have that warrant card. They can always place themselves back on duty and they're expected to behave in, you know, in, in with integrity, even in their personal lives. There's nothing wrong in that. Um, whether those standards are, are absolutely unachievable and are far too high, I think the public expects because the police have special powers and with you know, special powers come special responsibilities, don't they? And mm. the police ability to use. Um, coercive means, the police ability to stop and search, the police ability to deprive people of their liberty um, are held as, as you know, substantial powers within, within an organisation and a function. And the public, as a result of that, are really sensitive to any sign of lack of professional conduct or hypocrisy yeah, in, yeah. in individuals' yeah. uh, behaviours. Um, is the code of ethics um, aspirational? Is it too high? 
a standard a too high a bar for police officers to reach. Um, I think in some areas it might be. I think, uh, and in fairness to the College of Policing, again, the Code of Ethics is currently under review at the moment. The Code of Ethics was developed about 10 years ago um, on the back of the Leveson inquiry where Theresa May, do you remember her, was Home Secretary that um, asked, the co asked the College of Policing to develop a Code of Ethics to restrict this issue and, and to address questions of legitimacy around the police relationship with the media, mm. with business, with other areas that called into question the police impartiality mm. and query corruption. Yeah. So I think, I think the Code of Ethics is, is relevant for uh, review and it's currently under review at the moment. I'm involved in some of that work actually. So, you know, they are reaching out to people who have worked in policing to academia and others. So I think that's very much their credit. But I, but I do think that, you know, there are other areas where we see actually, um, you know, do some of, the, uh, some of the standards far too high. I would also emphasize the fact that we live in a world now, don't we, of social media, mm. of intrusion. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of people, particularly uh, younger people, live their lives on social media mm. So those toxic attitudes and values are being exposed a lot more through social media yeah. and WhatsApp groups yeah. and whistleblowers. And I think there's some that, that's really healthy because no longer are those kind of attitudes and values taking place behind closed doors within a canteen culture, in a pub where conversations are held and never reported or never, never come to light again. So I mm. think there are, there are pluses and negatives around mm. the kind of current social media and, and, and surveillance culture yeah. that we all experience yeah yeah no you, you know you make lots of brilliant points there and I, I don't disagree with anything you've said at all um I just I suppose I just I kind of just live in the real world you know and yeah. um and I just think god none of us none of us would survive bloody two minutes in the job now you know because because we're going back to that point we said right at the start about some of the so silly pranks and behavior yeah. and all of that kind of stuff and you know i do think um i think i think we have to just um it's not about it's not about saying uh we should tolerate terrible behavior because we shouldn't none of us should either in our personal or professional lives that you've got to call it out when you see it but equally um there's something there about understanding that we're all human aren't we we're all human yeah. we're all and, fallible and we all make fallible. mistakes we all make mistakes and uh and very often when we make mistakes we know we're making mistakes don't we we know yeah it. and um i i don't know i'm not quite sure where i'm going with that point but the point is that there needs to be an acknowledgement of there needs to be whatever they put in place in response to all of this stuff that we're seeing under the casey report i dearly hope that they're able to find a nuanced um proportionate common sense mechanism for understanding the difference between someone who has said something stupid um and then which they regret and then they apologize for and someone who's a wrong because yeah. i think there's a big big difference isn't there yeah I, I would completely agree with you ian it's all it is all about proportionality it's all about understanding you know the different elements that go into a misconduct or gross misconduct for which an officer could expect to be sacked and how that's managed through an organization um i, I have i do have problems with 
policing in terms of the blame culture. And I think yeah. it's a wider societal problem that if things are going wrong, uh, if there's inappropriate behaviour and misconduct, et cetera, then automatically there's, there's someone that needs to be blamed and that, and that blame can, can be disproportionate. But I have to say, it does come back to um, having good leadership, having intrusive leadership around people that leaders supervise that generally take an interest in their subordinates' lives, professional behaviours and mm. conduct, and are prepared to call out bad behaviour at an early stage. Yeah, yeah, and are yeah. confident and people are comfortable at, at reporting bad behavior you know whistleblowing mechanisms are really important as well mm. and communicating with with the community mm. around you know and, and policing being as transparent as possible and i think you always because we always look to london don't we and, and london the met has you know the big issues at the moment but i do look at the current commissioner and the deputy commissioner and, and think actually these are these are really these are serious professionals. These yeah. are serious people that, that you know, say they're going to introduce reforms, say that they're going to address some of these toxic areas, and I have every confidence that they will do. They've got no alternative, let's face yeah, it. Yeah, They've got yeah. absolutely no alternative. Yeah, it well, has to be addressed. You know, I, I, share, your, I share your confidence in, in both, both uh, you know, Mark Riley and, and uh, uh, Lynn Owens. I think they're both top-notch, top, top -notch, serious people um, and good human beings. And yeah. I wish them the very best. But... Um, yeah, just so I'm sorry, we went off at a bit of a tangent there, but I think it's important. I think it's interesting. It's very current, isn't it? Or all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and let's get back to your let's get back to your students then. Um so uh what are you what are you hearing about the and I, I don't want to, you know, I want you need to be brutally honest about this. The realities for a lot of these students who are then going out into the workplace um delivering frontline policing yeah whilst at the same time having to study for a degree um and also the the pay isn't 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 good at all is it yeah. for, for younger officers now um so what are you hearing around their experiences yeah. well uh, we're hearing an awful lot so there's probably um a number of key areas that that we encourage and we we look to first of all we think about actually how students gaining relevant experience in policing mm. uh, we work closely in partnership with west midlands police and we encourage our students to become special constables so whilst they're studying for their professional policing degree they're also volunteering as special constables now the students really enjoy that it's really it's it's a it's a a uh, scheme that's valued by West Midlands Police, so it's valued by the service itself. Mm. It helps the students make sense of their studies, their academic studies, because they've got that applied context about going into the real world and working as volunteers, as special, as special constables. Now, they don't get paid for that, but they put, you know, many of them put quite a number of hours and are quite dedicated to developing their skills as special constables and we get really good feedback from so them. So these are the ones who are doing a, a full-time... Absolutely. So they're, they're full-time studies. Yeah. They might even have a, a, a job as well mm -hmm. and they also operate as special constables. So many of them choose to do that. Not all of them. It's not right for everybody at different stages of their development and their careers. Mm -hmm. What we also have is we also have um, the, 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 the kind of feedback from students that you know are, are interested in 
um, broader policing issues. And a number of students we also have that, as they're working with us, um, are full-time students, they're looking to get recruited into policing as police staff. And we've had students that have become members of police staff. Mm. And actually, when it comes to it, when they have when they come to make that choice around, do they become a warranted officer and take mm. a pay cut from mm. being police staff? You know, they've got some very careful decisions to make. Oh, um, God, it's crazy, you know, isn't it? It is. It is. And counterintuitively. And, mm. you know, police pay has no doubt about it, hasn't it? It's fallen behind. I mean, when we joined the police, we were at the sort of the, the bow wave of the Edmund Davis reforms where police pay went up about a third, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah during those days and policing actually was a really well-paid occupation when, yeah, when yeah. we joined well, the police. I, I was when i graduated from university i was i was earning a lot more than yeah. my, my like the people i've been at university with as a as, yeah. a as a new pc yeah absolutely so you know things have fallen back let's be honest about it and so people are but nevertheless people are still looking for you know similar thematic areas around stability around career development around variety so when you ask people why you want to join the police inevitably the, que- the, the, the question is then posed back, well, I want to make a difference, wouldn't you? Mm. And still very much a case of people want to make a positive difference to people's lives. Your ability to do that in policing is absolutely unique. It's still a profession like no other. Mm. Uh, you're a huge advocate of professional policing. I know uh, so am I, you know, I work, mm. in, work in the arena and, um, you know, it's, it, it is, you still see the right kind of attitudes and values about people's motivation to want to make a difference to people's lives. Yeah, yeah, it all yeah. comes across loud and clear. Yeah, and those and those who are doing the day release, um, the, this ones you're, sure, yeah. how, how is that working for them? Well, it depends. I think. I mean, I, I do talk to students who do who are on those programs, and I think it depends on some students find it very demanding, very challenging, and you would argue, wouldn't you, actually, why? Why wouldn't you make professional mm. policing a challenging, demanding occupation, profession mm. to develop in? Actually, it's mm. right because, yeah, police officers now need the, need the wisdom of Solomon, don't they? They need the mm. bravery of a lion. They need, mm. they need so many different skills, so many different, when we think about the technological changes in policing, the mm. changes in law legislation, you, know, you need a lot more skills than perhaps we had to develop yeah, or yeah. we had to have in, in the day. Um, so. So I think a lot of people find it really challenging. Mm-hmm. A lot of people find, find you know, switching from practical policing to academia and the theoretical parts challenging. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, that needs to be charted. It's, mm. you know, there is no alternative uh, as, as we go through. It must and be it, quite difficult for them to balance it with the yeah. 24-7 nature Absolutely. of policing as well. I mean, because if you're, if you're, if you know that you're going to be at university on a, on a Wednesday, for example. Yeah. And your nights, oh, on yeah, Monday and Tuesday or something. Well, you're, you're stuffed, yeah. aren't you? You're not going to be able to do the nights, are you? Oh, you might, you'll probably have to drop back. It's difficult, on, you know. You might be able to do the it, Monday, but definitely it, not the Tuesday. Will it, you? it is absolutely, it is very difficult. But again, Ian, you know, these are aspects of professional policing that you know, not unique to policing. There are other occupations. One of the key things about policing, I always found this, particularly as a senior investigating officer or on call, that. At 2 a.m. when you get that phone call and you're on call and there's a homicide Mm. and you've got to address yourself at 2 a.m. to make some of the most challenging operational decisions and professional decisions that you can make when you're at least able to make those effectively. Yeah. 
yeah. when you've just woken oh, up God, at 2 a.m. in the morning. I don't miss that, Ron. Yeah. I don't miss that. So that, that's part of the job. You know, that is part of what policing is about, to, to be able to have agency and make decisions, effective decisions, when, you know, you really are, you really are struggling to get focus. But you need to get focus because that's, oh, yeah. the, that's the need of the role of the job. Oh, God, I used, to, I used to dread those phone calls. And uh, yeah. you'd, uh, you'd, go, you'd have your blue book, wouldn't you? You'd have your, yeah. blue, you'd have your blue book by the side of the bed and a pen. Yeah, and your mobile phone. Yeah, and it absolutely. Would go off, and then you'd have to creep downstairs, yeah. try, not, try not to wake the kids or whatever, and then sit in the kitchen in your dressing gown, making notes, speaking to yeah. some, making speaking to some uniform PS who's, and you could hear the stuff going on in the background, the, yeah. you know, sirens and all shit like that going on. And it's all think, oh, chaos, and especially yeah, when it's yeah, sort of deep, yeah. deepest, darkest winter, oh, those horrible, January and February mornings when. <laughs> When you had to go out, but you had to do it because that's what you, you that was the professional challenge and the demands of what you had to do. And yeah, yeah. so so therefore, when students talk about actually they're finding it difficult to weigh up um, their professional life with studies and et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, in a sense, you could argue they're building good skills to mm. building personal resilience in order to, uh, to to make them more effective as police officers going forward, yeah. So um, obviously the terms and conditions of employment and pensions and all of that um, have changed radically since you and I joined. Um, do, do you see, do you see, um, do you have concerns that people are going to do it for a few years, get it on the CV and then jack it in? Well, I mean, am I concerned about that? Absolutely. Um, is it a reality? Definitely. I mean, and if you talk to students, and I talk to our students, and if you talk to sort of 19, 20 year olds and you say, well, how many careers do you think you're going to have? How many jobs do you think you're going to have in your lifetime when there's an expectation that people are, you know, we're living longer, we're working longer. And people are saying, well, I, I probably will have about half a dozen or at least four different careers. So mm. I might do police. I might be a police officer for 10 years. I might then do something different. It all depends mm. on where my life's situation is and what circumstances are. Um, mm. But in actual fact, what I'd also argue that in terms of financial difficulty, and we've lived and we're living through those those circumstances, is that people tend to invest in themselves and they want stability mm. in a in a professional role. So I think mm. that's why policing is still an attractive proposition, mm. is that it does provide a stable career that mm. has you know a, a, a very clear professional structure. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. specialization of promotion etc so i still think it ticks a lot of boxes yeah. around you know what makes a good occupation yeah i suppose my i had this conversation ages and ages ago with clive burgess on the podcast and um you know my my fear as i've said many times is that for those really kind of those jobs that require a great deal of a deep knowledge of policing gained over many years of seeing what can go badly wrong yeah. on this, having been through those sort of really yeah. test, being tested i suppose that's absolutely been tested many many times and and the people around you on those teams so i'm thinking about the homicide teams i'm thinking about the kind of terrorism the serious and organized crime all of those who recruit only the most experienced yeah. people who don't mind getting dragged out of bed at three o'clock in the morning um and you can give a really serious complex job to them and you know it's going to get done really yeah. really well my fear 
is that if people are jacking it in after only a few years, would the pool of people, the pool of talent that we're going to have to pull into those complex worlds of serious crime is just not going to be there, yeah. I suppose. I, I, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And and I think that, you know, that is an issue. But but then again, you know, a part, an argument was that, look at look at us, we... We, you know, we didn't have to leave policing after 30 years, but mm. you know the conditions of our terms of uh, our pensions may meant that actually it was disadvantageous to stay on beyond 30 years. Mm. But 30 years, we were at the peak of our powers mm. of understanding, of professionalism, mm. of experience, mm. and yet the organisation withdrew us, mm. said, "Actually, your time's up." You've done 30 yeah. years, your time's up when you were yeah. still at your peak of your powers. And, and yeah. I have to say, it's, it, I would be saying that it's how policing manages resilience, experience, developing yeah. people. And, and yeah. policing might have to develop people yeah. Yeah. at a faster pace. I read uh, something interesting the other day. It was in an article written by Dominic Adler. I posted it on uh, LinkedIn, shared it on LinkedIn. That was his response. Uh, he's a freelance writer, a guy I used to work with. Really, really bright, bright guy. And he, um, I posted it on LinkedIn, if anyone wants to kind of look at it, and it's his response to the Louise Casey report. Mm. And um, the point that he made, which I thought was, a, was absolutely spot on, is that what Mark Riley needs and other chief constables around the country need now isn't a bunch of um, academics or highly paid consultants to come in and tell them what to do. They need to recruit about 200 really experienced gnarly sergeants <laughs> <laughs> who, who can sort stuff out you know what I mean get stuff yeah. done and um and that that's where I think um you know it's interesting I mean would you I mean oh god I've, I I I wrestle with this question all the time if somebody said to me would you go back mm. I'd go because it's kind of there's a kind of a case of put your money where your mouth is sometimes isn't it it's very easy for people like me to sit on the sidelines you know dispassionately uh, yeah. watching all this a bit like a kind of a science expert like look at the petri dish of yeah of policing isn't it it's yeah. very easy but you know would you go, would you go back if, if would i go back uh, yeah um i do miss the job i do miss the job <laughs> to be honest Ian. and um I'd love to go back and, and do the job, but things are never, I don't, I don't think there are, things are ever quite the same. And I think it's inevitable that policing changes. And, and in fact, police needs to change. It's one of the consistent themes of yeah, policing yeah. over the, over the decades that policing will always change. And when I look back uh, and I know, you know, forgive me for, for swinging the lamp uh, for, for a moment or two, but when I go back and it's where your expression comes from the podcast is that mm. when I go back to that relief that I joined in in uh, so early 1988 when I finished training school and the old sweats you know the the officers mm. with sort of 20 years why have you joined this job it's Just never fucked, yeah. it's absolutely we can't because of pace we can't search people properly we can't interview interrogate people properly the crown prosecution service had just been implemented we can't prosecute offenders properly with just policing is just being hollowed out. It's never yeah. going to be the same again. What's the point of it? And it struck me. And I used to listen to them at that time thinking, I'm not so cynical as that because I'm fresh faced. I'm, uh, you know, I want to make mm. a difference. Mm. And subsequently, when I look at it now, I think every kind of generation mm. has its moment. And the issue is that the older you get, the better you were. <laughs> it's right. 
and yeah, um yeah, yeah. and I, so i think i think we need to recognize actually yeah that no you're, you're, you're for another generation for to come through and and i'm going to get all academic for a moment and you expect me to because i'm after all now an academic that uh, aristotle had a word for this called phronesis mm. and it means practical wisdom and that's that's the importance in policing. So whatever whatever we think about in terms of educational standards, academic qualifications, you still need that practical wisdom, that phronesis, yeah. where your ethical approach, your you know that moral compass that we all have within us is mm. is you know we don't always get it right, absolutely, yeah. but we make providing we make those decisions for the right reasons to make a positive yeah. difference to people's lives. Policing is complex, messy, it's dangerous. It always will be. Mm, yeah, yeah. But it's part of our responsibility to make sure that we're supporting the, the men and women, the overwhelming number of people that go to work and want to make that difference to people's lives and help keep us all safe. Yeah, no, and I, I 100%, 100% agree with what you just said. Uh, and um, yeah, and I, I'm very conscious of that. And, and I do think this podcast has probably got a bit of a shelf life. Um you know, I've, I've probably, I'm on sort of mid sixties episode now. I think there'll come a point where I just think I've just got to sh shut up. And, I disagree. Um... Keep it going. It's a fantastic <laughs> podcast. It's hugely entertaining. I just, um, I, wasn't know, fishing, I, I wasn't fishing for companies. It was more, it was more a case, it's more a case of saying that what you've just said there is absolutely right. That, that, that the, there is a time now where you have, you've got to accept that you are no longer the, the person whose responsibility yeah. it is to keep the public safe and and there's a whole new generation of people doing Absolutely. it and they're, and they're going to make mistakes it's not going to be perfect yeah. and some of the background noise around policing is going to continue yeah. it always has been there hasn't yeah. it it, um, it has and, and ian the further dimension to that is technology artificial intelligence yeah data analytics that is all going to change but that's going to revolutionize policing yeah. over yeah. over the next few years uh, yeah. so policing again will become yeah you know the mechanics of policing yeah will be will, will change you know further and faster than ever before yeah listen my friend that's probably a Absolute very good pleasure. very good place to um to draw a line but uh ron uh, i've really enjoyed this i've learned a lot actually and i think you've probably um changed some of my prejudices about about some of this stuff i i do genuinely um take my hat off to anyone who is joining the police now and i i wish them the you know the wish them all the best of luck in the world and pass on my regards to your students and Good day. if you want me to come along and, and have a chat about what i've learned absolutely i'd love you to come and come and speak to our students ian and do some guest lectures for us you, you're yeah, very very welcome to come and see what of, we do uh, yeah. yeah 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of great takeaways that i find from doing this podcast uh, i've learned a lot from doing it and um you know so great listen ron Thanks a million, and uh, we'll catch up for a beer. And um, yeah, great. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure, Ian. And um, good luck with your future podcasts. And it's <laughs> lovely to talk and uh, and swing the lamp for a period yes, of time. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Millie, you take care. Take care, Ian. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye bye. bye, -bye. <laughs>